Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I just asked. A lot of Canadians have just asked their doctors for Ozempic. More than 3.5 million prescriptions last year alone and climbing rapidly. That's according to the tracking company, Icvia. Oh, and by the way, this is White Coat Blackheart, and I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. But you know who we are. And increasingly, you know what Ozempic is. Type 2 diabetes? Discover the Ozempic Trizone. My Ozempic Trizone, I lowered my A1C, CV risk, and lost some weight. Medications like semaglutide, Ozempic's other name, were first approved for type 2 diabetes. Now they're known the world over as weight loss drugs. It's become a cultural phenomenon, a celebrity guessing game that even made it to this year's Oscars. You look great. Everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? (laughs) And not just Ozempic, which, like Wigovi, contains semaglutide. There's Manjaro and Zepbound, which the FDA just approved. Both contain another GLP drug named Tirzepatide. And there are many more to come. These treatments are changing how you want to lose weight and keep it off. My health was starting to suffer. My blood pressure was high. Um, I had a back operation almost two years ago, and the extra weight on my back was just killing me. That's Lori Taylor Capozzi from Penticton, B.C. She's been dealing with weight issues since she was 15. She got hypothyroidism in her 30s and found it hard to lose the extra pounds. She worked out, ate healthy, and tried every diet she could find. But nothing worked. Yeah, and they've got this commercial on TV and they sing. It's like, oh, whoa, 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 Zempic. And I'm like, oh, Zempic, oh, Zempic. Yeah, that's what the stars are taking, right? So my doctor wrote me the prescription. And, you know, I've lost a total of 40 pounds. But there's a real shortage of Ozempic. And um, I've gained about six pounds back. So my biggest fear right now is that I'm not going to be able to get a period. And then I'm going to gain all that weight back. That's my biggest fear right now. These medications are so popular, it's led to severe shortages. On the other hand, there are new and growing concerns about adverse effects, including thoughts of self-harm. We think it's time to take a step back and assess exactly where we are on the Ozempic trizone, as they call it. And we've got the perfect guest to do just that. Hi, my name is Daniel Drucker. I'm a clinician scientist at the Lunenfeld-Tenenbaum Research Institute at the Mount Sinai Hospital at the University of Toronto. And I'm a professor of medicine there, and I've been studying the glucagon-like peptides, including GLP-1, since the inception of the field over 35 years ago. We need to do a bit of tech talk here. Ozempic and drugs like it are known as glucagon-like peptides, or GLPs. For 35 years, Dr. Daniel Drucker has played an essential role in discovering GLPs and identifying their enormous potential to save lives. But there's another reason why I've been dying to get Dan on the show. And I'm also proud to say that you're my classmate. Yeah, that goes back more than 35 years, but we won't tell everyone exactly how long, Brian. 
Wow. And you know what? Uh, when we were both in med school, did you think your career was going to go in the direction it did? I certainly didn't think mine was going to go in the direction mine did. No, I wanted to be a family physician and uh, still regret sometimes not being in that role. But life throws different uh, paths in front of us. And sometimes you take them and it works out. Here's our state-of-the-art conversation on Ozempic. Dr. Dan Drucker, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. It's great to be speaking with you too. And that's because you pioneered research on glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, a hormone released in your gut after you eat. That led to therapies for people with type 2 diabetes. Did you ever think it would explode onto the world as it has in the last year or two? I don't think any of us had any idea, Brian. You know, th these medicines have been approved for type 2 diabetes for 18 and a half years. And they were effective and they were popular with people with type 2 diabetes that helped them control their blood sugar and their body weight. But there was nothing like the interest that we've seen in the last couple of years with the introduction of the more powerful medicines that help people with obesity. So to help us understand how we got to this point in time, I want to go right back to the beginning and the original work that you did, which means talking about the Gila monster lizard. How did it help lead to a treatment for diabetes? We saw these sequences in the gene in, in 1980, 81, and we said, what the heck are they doing? And the first actions that I discovered working in the lab was that it stimulated insulin secretion. And so that was the initial focus for uh, type 2 diabetes, but it was hard to make GLP-1 into a drug. And then in the early 1990s, a biochemist, John Ng, at the Bronx VA Hospital in New York, he decided to isolate a whole bunch of proteins from the lizard venom of this Gila monster lizard. And one of them looked like GLP-1. And after a lot of work, surprisingly, that molecule became the first approved GLP-1 medicine for the treatment of type 2 diabetes in 2005. Our role was, was minor. We cloned the genes from the lizard and showed that the lizard had GLP-1 genes and also exenatide genes. And that helped us to understand what was going on. For you personally, professionally, was there a moment when you realized you were onto something really big? You know, the research was exciting and we got the papers and there were patents filed. But honestly, Brian, you probably remember what it was like in the early 1980s. So I had a wife and a small child and an even smaller salary. And all I really wanted to do was to get a job and to be able to order, you know, pepperoni and mushrooms on my pizza and not just have a plain pizza. And, you know, because it was... <laughs> It was tough times back then. So how did this treatment for diabetes, semaglutide, turn into drug treatments for obesity that we're seeing now like Ozempic, Wigovi, and Manjaro? So, you know, the first medicine, the lizard venom medicine, Exenatide, was approved in 2005. And we started to see weight loss in people with type 2 diabetes, but it, but it was modest. And Novo Nordis asked a question a few years later, you know, if we increase the dose of the medicine, their medicine, liraglutide, might we see even more weight loss and might it be useful for helping people living with obesity? And the answer was yes. And that was approved in 2014. So that was the first evidence that we could use GLP-1 medicines to treat people living with obesity. And then, of course, semaglutide came along a few years later, and that was even more powerful. And when that was tested in people with obesity with the once a week 2.4 milligram dose, then the magic happened. We started to see 15, 16, 17% weight loss, 40% of people 
losing 20% of their body weight. And that really, I think, opened up a completely new era in the medical management of obesity. These medications uh, help people feel full sooner. Can you explain exactly how they work? So it has two different actions to make us feel less hungry. One is that it does inhibit the emptying of our stomach, and it does that by acting on the brain. But it has a separate action to tell our brains that we're not hungry. And we see this when we talk to people who take these medicines all the time. They say, I don't need to finish the bowl of chips. I don't need to finish the pizza. I'm just not as interested in food as I used to be. And that hunger translates into weight loss, which is really meaningful. We've done shows on bariatric surgery and the benefits of treating obesity as a disease, not as a behavior. How have medications like Ozempic and Wigovi entered into discussions surrounding the chronic treatment of obesity and, and you know, when you do surgery and, and when you use these medications instead? So up until very recently, bariatric surgery was by far and away the most effective intervention that we could recommend for people. But, you know, it's not for everybody. There are some side effects and not everyone is, is interested in a surgical procedure that's difficult to reverse, we're starting now to think about, hey, we, we can almost do as well with medicines compared to bariatric surgery. And I think what we're going to see in a few years is a randomized trial. Let's randomize people to bariatric surgery or to the medicines. Let's follow them for five years and let's look at the improvements in their health, one versus the other. And I don't think we should view them as either or. So I think there are options that healthcare providers have to help people. And with all medications, you have the good and you have the not so good. So we've heard from people who have taken Ozempic, had minimal side effects and lost significant weight. We've also heard from patients who put up with persistent side effects that were significant to them and, and uh, in some cases, deal breakers. Let's listen to Pamela Cole, a 38-year-old from Moramora, Ontario. It started as flu symptoms, and I just wasn't getting better. I was getting worse to the point I couldn't eat anything um, without severe stomach pain, or I couldn't keep anything down. And I was in and out of the hospital four to five times. It was an insane couple weeks. And it was extremely scary, you know, being told you're having problems with your kidneys, your liver, your stomach. I was having severe chest pains, and they had to check to see if I had a heart attack. But they got me a little, a little more stabilized. And I got to meet up with an internal organ specialist. And he said, we'll continue to run tests, but you need to stop taking Ozempic because I have a feeling it could be the cause based on research that I've done. So I've been off Ozempic for six or seven weeks now, and I feel better than I ever have. So the specialist concluded that it was the Ozempic causing it because we kind of removed that and everything returned to normal. And to be clear, Pamela Cole was receiving her Ozempic through a prescription from her physician. Dan, listening to a story like that, what do you think? I'd say that's a pretty uncommon experience. So although some people like to say, well, these are new medicines and we don't really understand the safety, the GLP-1 class is being used for 18 and a half years in tens of millions of people with type 2 diabetes and two to three years or so now in people who are trying to lose weight living with obesity. And 
That description, although we certainly respect and value the lived experience and it's welcome, it's extraordinarily rare. But I think the point is that with the newer, more powerful medicines and the expanding patient population, there is always the possibility to see something that we haven't before. There have been some reports published in in journals, but have been reported in the media, of increased thoughts of self-harm. Do you have any idea where we are at this stage now of trying to understand why somebody who takes Ozempic might have an increased risk of thoughts of self-harm? It's not inconceivable that some people might say, I used to really enjoy food and I used to have more energy and now life is just not as good as it used to be. And we have to remember, as you know, as a physician, the background rates of psychiatric disease are sadly much higher in people living with obesity than in the general population. And we'll learn more about this, I think, over the next few months. It's being studied uh, particularly in Europe with the European Medicines Authority and probably at the FDA as well. Some experts have have said that there are concerns about long-term side effects, and yet there are 18 years of experience. What do we know at this point about the long-term effects of medications like semaglutide? So we're not aware of any meaningful long-term side effects that would preclude me from prescribing this medicine to the vast majority of the population. So we have had eight large cardiovascular safety trials with thousands of people, sometimes more than 10,000 people in each of these trials, and they have been studied from two to six years. And what we see generally are favorable results in those trials. We see reduction in heart attacks, strokes, cardiovascular death, all-cause mortality, and we do not see an increase in cancer or an increase in pancreatitis. So generally, the the long-term data that we have is, is pretty good. But as we've discussed, you know, there always can be a rare side effect. And so we just have to be respectful as we go forward to keep learning as much as we can about the risk-benefit ratio of these medicines. Some patients have experienced the risks and are taking action. The diabetes drug Ozempic has exploded in popularity since doctors began prescribing it for weight loss. But now a proposed class action lawsuit has been filed in B.C., alleging the Canadian manufacturer of the drug didn't warn prospective patients about possible complications. Those severe side effects include stomach paralysis and malnutrition. In a statement, Ozempic manufacturer Novo Nordisk told the CBC it stands behind the safety and efficacy of all of its GLP-1 medicines when used by appropriate patients consistent with the product labeling and approved indications. Growing concerns about side effects have helped amplify another issue, relying on medications to treat obesity. I think there remains a strong culture-wide belief that, at least among some, that obesity is a behavior and not a disease. Uh, And that taking a medication like Ozempic is is a a vice that isn't as virtuous as a diet and exercise. And I want to know, as as somebody who's been there since the beginning, what do you think of that? So... You know, GLP-1 medicines are not the solution to the obesity epidemic. We have ongoing efforts as a society in education, in provision of healthy, affordable foods, in building healthier cities that are easier to navigate and promote walking and exercise. But we don't yet have evidence on a population-wide basis that implementation of one or more of these Uh, policies is going to meaningfully reverse or slow down the obesity epidemic. So this needs ongoing effort. And I don't think GLP-1 is a solution that would replace the importance of 
any of these public health measures. But if you're sitting across the desk from someone who is living with obesity and they have a high risk of heart disease and kidney disease and liver disease and cancer, you know, I think GLP-1 medicines are a very useful option for some people. And it doesn't mean we stop all of the other efforts. Those are extremely important, but they're not sufficiently effective by themselves that we can just abandon the medical therapy. We'll be right back. I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And I'm Harvinder Vadva. We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with Season 3. With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make? Should you ask a polyamorous person, do you get jealous? Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Blackheart. This week, from the halls of medicine to your medicine cabinet, we're taking a closer look at Ozempic. My guest is Dr. Daniel Drucker, a physician scientist whose research helped pave the way for Ozempic, also known as semaglutide. It turns out that other, more powerful medications may be coming soon. These include the aforementioned Zepbound, which contains terzepatide, which was just approved for weight loss by the FDA. Here's more of my conversation with Dr. Dan Drucker. So we know that Ozempic and Wagovi target one hormone to help people lose weight. Monjaro targets two hormones, which promotes even more weight loss. Now a new medication is being worked on, Triple G, that targets three hormones. Uh, Dr. Dan Drucker, what can you tell us about that? So we have multiple signals that our gut sends to our brain to tell the brain, you know what, we've had enough food, you don't need to eat anymore, let's take away the hunger. And certainly these gut hormones that you've described, GLP-1, GIP, glucagon, amylin, uh, CCK, there are just a, a bunch of them, you know, combining them together is clearly a very powerful approach. Now, one of the things we have to ask is, well, we, we've seen the safety of GLP-1 alone for 18 years. As we get excited about the more powerful combinations, we also have to remind ourselves that we don't have the same 18-year safety database for multiple hormonal therapy. And so these are questions that we will need to answer going forward. But there's no question that we will have a whole bunch, probably half a dozen medicines over the next five years that will allow someone to achieve 23, 25% weight loss if they're living with obesity. Now, everybody's talking about weight loss, but that's not the whole story. Semaglutide and medications like it not only help people lose weight, but as you've already said, there's growing research that, for instance, Wigovi significantly improves overall health by reducing the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular deaths. It can't all be because of weight loss. What else is it doing? So I use these metaphors that GLP-1 has two shots on goal. For diabetes, it has the glucose-lowering effect. And for people living with obesity, it has the weight loss effect. And certainly lowering your blood sugar or reducing your body weight is tremendously beneficial for overall health. But the other shot on goal that GLP-1 has is that it works through its receptors that are present in the kidneys and in the heart and the liver and blood vessels. And it has weight loss and blood sugar independent effects to improve the health of these organs. So, you know, we now have evidence from a very large trial looking at the safety of people with obesity who also had cardiovascular disease. And semaglutide was studied in this people for years. And what did the trial show? It showed not only weight loss, but reduced rates of 
heart attacks, strokes, and death. And this select trial data was just published in November and I think will change the conversation around the importance of treating people with obesity. You know, we've been talking about the benefits of these medications. We've talked about side effects. These medications with substantial health benefits just happen to be in very short supply. They're also expensive. They're not always covered. How big an issue is accessibility right now? Accessibility is enormous. You know, as I've seen in my career, there's a little point in thinking one can improve the health of society if the medicines are not affordable and not accessible. So how do we improve access? So the companies are working very hard to scale up manufacturing, and pills are infinitely less expensive and generally much easier to manufacture. So it would have an enormous impact on uh, availability and accessibility and, and distribution. And so I think that is something we should be really excited about. And thankfully, I, I think there are probably half a dozen companies with GLP-1 in the form of pills that are now in clinical trials. So this is going to happen, and I'm hopeful it will have a big impact, but it will take four or five years. So far, we've been talking about adults. We certainly have growing rates of obesity in children. And I'm wondering, do you have concerns? And if so, what concerns would you have about putting kids on medications like semaglutide or Ozempic? Yeah, that's a really important question. So, you know, on the one hand, I say we have 18 and a half years of experience using GLP-1 medicines in millions of people, but those, as you are pointing out, are in adults. And we have so little experience in children ages 13 to 18 or even younger. And these medicines are starting to become approved now in adolescents living with obesity or living with type 2 diabetes. The risks of not treating their disease appropriately include complications of diabetes, fatty liver. We're starting to see heart disease in people who are 18 to 20 years old. On the other hand, we have to be honest and say, you know, we've, we've studied these medicines in young people, maybe one to 2,000 young people, and we don't have a large safety database. So, so I think the medicines would be appropriate for the highest risk uh, segment of that population. So if we started to see a young person with early evidence of kidney damage, with early evidence of heart disease, then I think I would be more comfortable with the risk-benefit ratio. But what I would most like to see are large clinical trials, even after approval, where we follow thousands of these young people for five years on these medicines. Watch what happens to their going through puberty, watch what happens to their growth, watch what happens to their emotional state, and really get a much larger safety database in this younger population. That's what I'd like to see. I want to uh, close our conversation by peering into the near future and maybe the somewhat distant future. As I've talked about uh, often on the show and on social media, I have lots of family members who have died of Alzheimer's dementia. There's research that's looking at GLP-1, GLP-2 receptor uh, agonists as, as potential treatments for dementia. I don't want to, to uh, kind of uh, encourage false hope, but how plausible is that, do you think? So there are three lines of evidence that would lead us to study this issue. So there are animal studies where if we treat animals who develop neurodegenerative disease with the GLP-1 drugs, they do better. We have clinical trial data where people studied in the large cardiovascular outcome trials who received 
that GLP-1 medicine had fewer new onset diagnosis of dementia. And then we have real world data where people peering into the databases in Scandinavia where they have excellent health records. They say, you know what, if you started a GLP-1 drug as opposed to insulin, you had lower rates of Alzheimer's disease. But that just generates the hypothesis, which is, is it possible that GLP-1 might reduce the rates of Alzheimer's? And so Nova Nordisk has two clinical trials underway with the oral form of semaglutide in people at risk of developing Alzheimer's. We also have a phase three trial underway in people with Parkinson's disease with a once-weekly GLP-1 drug. So we will learn in three years or so whether these trials are positive or not, but this is the toughest hill to climb, as we know, in drug development. So we're glad that we're doing the trials, but we wouldn't want to instill false hope at this point. And especially given the fact that uh, medications that reduce amyloid in the brain that have been used in clinical trials have been, I would say, spectacularly disappointing. Yeah, and I think this is the interesting thing about the GLP-1 drugs. So they're not attacking the traditional targets. They're not attacking amyloid or presenilin or tau phosphorylation, et cetera. They're working through other mechanisms. So it'll be fascinating to see the results of these trials in a few years. And there's some hope that these medications might also have an impact on patients who have fatty liver disease. So that data is pretty good. And again, I think there are two shots on goal here. One is obviously weight loss does clear fat from the liver. But data from our lab shows that independent of weight loss, there are GLP-1 receptors in the liver, not in the traditional liver cells, but in other cells like immune cells that seem to be very important in reducing inflammation in the liver. And there's a large phase three trial underway now with semaglutide called the ESSENCE trial. It will probably report out in probably two to three years, and we will learn whether this will be a valuable treatment to prevent the complications of metabolic liver disease. You sound like you're not planning on retirement. Have I got that right? You know, I have such a privilege to be surrounded by many enthusiastic young scientists who are interested in answering many of the questions that you've raised today about how is this all working. And, you know, to be honest, Brian, there's only so many days I can play golf. There's only so many days I can go to the cottage. I think my uh, wife and family are happier if I'm down at work for several hours each day rather than hanging around the house. And so uh, it's just too exciting a time now to say I'm going to go fishing. But you can finally uh, purchase that pepperoni pizza. With some mushrooms and and dried tomatoes, absolutely. Dr. Dan Drucker, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Daniel Drucker is hopeful that medications that contain semaglutide, like Ozempic and others, can help address the obesity crisis. And he hopes they can also be used to treat fatty liver disease and maybe even dementia. But he's not peddling false hope. The scientist in him says we need to conduct a lot more research. That's our show this week. To comment, our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. If you like this episode, why not give us a rate and review wherever you listen? White Coat Black Art was produced this week by senior producer Colleen Ross with help from Jennifer Warren, Stephanie Dubois, and Jason Vermesh. Our digital producer this week is Adam Killick. Our web writer is Brandy Wikely. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.